is Yaku and this is the Human and Machine podcast. To our first time listeners, welcome and welcome everyone to the new year, although it's already February, Lenny. Yeah, it feels like we slipped a little bit on this one, Yaku, our third podcast and it's only the end of February. I know, it's been, it's been bedlam this year, but it's, it's all, all good progress. Um, so of course, in the Human and Machine podcast, we aim to help you make sense of the latest industrial technology um, and the challenges, opportunities impacting manufacturing, uh, production and sustainability today uh, through some of the conversations we have with some some amazing people and we're grateful to our guests that we've had um, in our short short while that we've had the podcast that have shared their thoughts insights and often predictions which is usually the the exciting exciting piece so you're listening to episode 28 if you've missed any episodes last year make sure to catch up on our insightful conversations with uh, Arlen Nipper Walker Reynolds, Travis Cox from Inductive Automation. Uh, we had Vinesh Maharaj from PwC, Chris Clark from ABMBF, and just many more good people. Um, Lenny, let's say hello. Lenny is, of course, my co-host or host. I'm not sure what our relationship on the show is, Lenny, but it's been it's been a, an amazing one that I'm grateful for. Um, but yeah, Lenny is, is, is with me today, um, and we'll get into the topic in a minute. Uh, but yeah, we're here to share, get context, help, and most importantly, learn from each other. And it, it feels like all things our community needs at the minute. So Lenny, our leading training topic last year was without a doubt data. Yeah, I think um, the problem isn't any more storing data or getting access to data. I think the problem these days is what do you do with the data? Um, turning that data into, into insights, I feel, is the biggest problem, the biggest challenge, and biggest opportunity that we currently sit with. Yeah. Um, all about adding context to that data. At the end of the day, we want to empower and we want to make actionable decisions based on that data or, or that transformation of data into information. And that's that's where, where, where I work and that's my little bit of a passion. Yeah. It's about that um, transformation to make actionable decisions. That's right. It's not just about the data, it's about data to value. And I think it was Rowan from ABMB who said, not all data is valuable. And nor, while, created, nor, created nor created equally, yeah. And while most folks are trying to solve production, corporate and, and energy and sustainability challenges, the data to value journey seems to be the most complex. So we heard about last year, we heard about MQTT, the Unified Namespace Open Architectures. Uh, we also learned about some common traps, the uh, analytics chasm, data swamps, technology tail chase, uh, and of course the the problems which which they were which were plentiful scalability technical debt nesting context a new a new term uh, DevOps has been born DevOps that's right out of all of this that's right uh, so yeah making sense of what that is and what what benefits the DevOps platform can actually introduce into your organization. Well, so I think we'll con we'll continue with that trend because it's definitely not a or that theme. Sorry, it's definitely not a not a theme that we've done exploring and and delving into. Um, so the question is really how do we deploy strategies to collect and contextualize data? Very importantly, democratize it uh, and share it as decision making information, and especially with the benefits and advances of of AI and machine learning. Um, so yeah, to guide us through some of these talking points today, we're excited and grateful to host Carolina Torres who is the Executive Director of Energy Industry Transformation at Cognite. Carolina, welcome and thank you for joining our humble podcast here in South Africa. Thanks for having me. We're looking forward to the chat. Uh, that was probably a long intro, but those are just some of the real conversations we've had on the topic over the last little while. <laughs> I'm looking forward to talking about it. 
So Carolina, do you maybe want to give us an idea? I, I would imagine some of our some of our audience have have not heard of your business. So maybe give us a bit of context about your background first and foremost. Um, we we did have a quick chat about that before we started the podcast, and it's it's certainly a unconventional, um, interesting background. Sure. Um, so I've spent about thirty years a thirty year career in upstream oil and gas, uh, mainly around subsurface and wells. Uh, my background is in geology. Uh, but I spent quite a bit of time on figuring out how to develop oil and gas fields, um, drill wells into them. I've also worked in major projects in finance. Um, but the last five years of my career, I led um, BP's digital transformation for subsurface and wells. And I also worked on the energy transition. BP was very focused on reimagining energy and then also reinventing themselves as an energy company as opposed to just an oil and gas company. And, and what does that transition mean? And how do we remain profitable while we do it? Um, that was you know, a topic of uh, a lot of conversations uh, and a lot of strategy work. Um, what I learned from the, the, this my, my 30 year career plus the five years focused on digital transformation and, and change management and strategy is that um, transition is a data problem and basically everything that digital transformation is a data problem. And we have started out, and I'm, I'm guilty of this myself in my career, starting out thinking that it's all about the tools and the applications, but it's not, it's really about the data. Um, yep. So when I decided to leave BP, I wanted to work for a company that focused on that, that focused on how do we do data differently to enable digitalization, process automation, um, and ultimately um, to change from the old hydrocarbon-based energy world that we live in to something that's a little bit more sustainable and better. Um, and I joined Cognite about a year ago, uh, really wanting to solve this um, data problem uh, as a foundation to transforming the way that we deliver and use energy in the world. I love it when people are, are passionate about data. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> data is awesome. <laughs> I know, I love the conversation because uh, I think when we speak about digital transformation, I think the, the common elements are, are well known and well understood, the, the technology, the people, the process. But I think very often if you if you want to do anything that's scalable, you quickly realize that the data is is where that that's that's the hot sauce. Just gonna say, my first year, um, the big focus was on developing toolkit. Oh, let's let's make applications or let's develop these data science solutions. Um, let's do a pilot to see if we can automate this or if we can you know do a predictive model here, and. Um, you know, we spent a lot of time massaging, cleaning the data and building data models. And then, you know, we would solve a problem for like one pump or one, one issue or one well, and then it wasn't scalable or repeatable. And we'd have to do the same thing over again for the next well or the next question that we had. Um, yeah. and, and I think that that's where many, many companies have gotten frustrated is that this sort of piloting it's um you know poc purgatory is what we call it at, at cognitive oh yes it's actually a graveyard yeah, it's it's one yeah. of my pet peeves it's um it, it's a never-ending a never-ending the poc runs for indefinite <laughs> it never gets to a point it never it never actually proves what it's supposed to prove yeah um i always have the saying if a poc runs more than two weeks it's a project it's not a poc 
and, and you would probably, Carolina, you probably would have seen this, a number of RFPs, Qs, Ts, whatever the, whatever the, 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 the document is, the number of those that we've seen, and probably you have as well, that does not have a defined business objective, yeah. uh, which is just absolutely mindless. T Cognite as being at the epicenter of three global mega trends, if you will. There's the industrial digitalization, which is which kind of old news. You know, we've been talking about that for a long time. The energy transition, which is kind of the new buzzword. Um, and then and workforce transformation. So those three things um, all require a very, very different mindset and a very, very different way of dealing and handling data. The um, you know, industrial digitalization is about using data and really more and more data is becoming available as more and more um, uh, industrial processes have sensors and you know, are, are like spewing out data like crazy. Um, but it's really about using that data for humans to make better decisions. It's using AI and machine learning to help humans make better decisions. Um, the energy transition is really about reducing um, the impact of our legacy energy systems while transitioning to something new, um, which mm. is you know, in the process of being invented and figured out. And it's about reinventing the supply chain to turn it into a supply cycle as opposed to a single linear one-way, you know, one-way trip to the to the dump, um, okay. and it's about a, an unprecedented level of collaboration and transparency across all the players. So, you know, if you are going to change from a supply chain to a supply cycle, that means you need enormous amount of transformation, um, uh, trans, uh, uh, um, being able to collaborate and. Um, you need to be able to see each other's data from suppliers to operators to consumers and regulators, you need that yeah. transparency in the data and the sharing of information in a way that we never have had to do before. I'm, I'm almost visualizing it as a flywheel where yeah. we have yeah, exactly. interconnecting points, but for that wheel to function as a wheel, those points need to be connected, understood, shared, um, and, and be transparent to the other. Otherwise, it won't be a, a wheel, would it? Right. That's absolutely right. And then um, the workforce transformation is really about um, transforming the work to be more data-driven and empowering workers out in the field with all the info that they need in order to operate more efficiently or to operate with a reduced uh, greenhouse gas emissions or you know, wastewater. Um, they need to be able to make on-the-fly real-time decisions. Um, and uh, it's about reducing the risk and exposure to danger um, using robots and drones and things like that. But then again, more data um, that needs to be incorporated and brought in and contextualized and mixed with other information in order to inform a decision. So all of these things require a, a level of data operations that doesn't currently exist generally. Um, mm. You can't do any of these things using 19th century data management um, you know, mentality and processes. Data management is about how yeah. you store the data, how you categorize and catalog that data so that then you can pull it sort of in a one-off way um, and, and deliver it. And data, and it's, to, to me, the big difference between like data management and data operations. Data operations is a living, breathing, changing, continuously evolving thing that gives you unlimited access. And so, mm. That, that's kind of how I see those two things as being quite different. P 
people are trying to still do data management um, mm. with this, you know, tidal wave tsunami of data that's coming at them from from sensors and and things in their yeah. industrial world, and it's not it's not going to work. Yeah, with the advent of of cheap networks and and devices, uh, we do we do have this deluge of data just seemingly too much for people to understand what to do with, hmm. store it efficiently, contextualize it effectively, and and share it out as useful information. That's, I mean, that's the gist of the of the challenge. And and we're still seeing that data is being kept hot hostage in solutions in proprietary pieces of equipment. Um, I think we call them black boxes, yeah. Lena. <laughs> yeah. Black boxes yeah. of, of information. I had a quick look at the values of Cockroach on the website, and I think the, the one that's 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 very passionate for me, and one thing that I feel very very keen about is that data must be open to create value. I think if we we're not going to get that right and share that data and give the people the data that they need to make their decisions on, um, well, what's what's really the point? So I, I love that that value call of Cockroach around that data must be open to create value. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, it's absolutely essential. And like Jacko was saying in the flywheel, if you think about the uh, the supply the supply flywheel, I love that. Um, you know, it all has to be open, and it's not just about being open. You know, vendor operator open relationship, but it's it's around the supply suppliers and and the consumers even, and the the degree of transparency that companies are going to need to have with regard to their sustainability information. Um, both for the financial sector and for their consumers. Um, that's mm. got to be more open too. Mm. Um, so, so we mentioned industrial data ops. Maybe maybe it feels like we're only teeing it off now. <laughs> maybe as a departure point then. Um, industrial data ops. So I'm, I'm sure there's, I mean, there is a couple of, uh, you would probably aware there's a couple of solutions, products um, on the market now uh, being positioned and messaged as industrial data ops solution. Um, maybe you can you could share in your mind and your views what is industrial data ops? Um, Was it not? What it isn't and what it aims to solve for in this in this data journey. Okay. Um, maybe I can use an analogy. <laughs> I don't know if this yeah. will work or not, but let me think about this. So if you think about um, uh, in the olden days, everyone had a well in their backyard, and whenever they needed water, they'd have to, you know, get a bucket and walk out to the well and, you know, draw some water and pull it up and bring it in and do whatever they were going to do with that water, right? Now, um, when plumbing was invented. Um, that the whole mindset had to change completely because now you had plumbing, you had basically water on demand in your house. And that led to the creation of lots of multiple um, types of uses for that water. So showers and baths and a kitchen sink, and you know, you could flush a toilet and you could have a hot tub. Um, so mm -hmm. having plumbing in your house is like having a data ops platform. Um, if you, if a data ops platform enables you to create multiple different uses and slice and dice your data in multiple different ways. Um, the data management world that I was mentioning earlier is basically every time you need data, you have to go to the well uh, with your bucket and pull the water and, and carry it back. 
and you know, for each different usage of or question that you might have that you want to try to answer or decision that you might want to make, you mm. have to go and draw the water with a bucket. Whereas with a data ops platform, um, it's there, it's available, and you can uh, use it in any way you want. Um, you know, it's at your fingertips. I don't know if that. Like but it's, it's setting up a pipeline, right? You have multiple sources of data in an industrial world. I mean, I'm most familiar with oil and gas, but um, you know, yeah. you have uh, OSI Pi data, you have data from SAP that's financial data. You may have yeah. data that's in like subsurface data that's in Schlumberger product. Um, you know, you mentioned all these different silos. So every different little thing that you do has a little pool of data that's kind of locked into a little silo that has proprietary data model and you have to bring all of those different sources together and if you don't have a data ops platform if you're just data managing you somebody a human or a team of humans has to take that data bring it together into one place and map out the relationships and link up the different pieces of that data and then the other thing that you all mentioned was about curating because not all that data is necessary, maybe only parts of it. So you have to curate the right bits. Um, you yeah. have to clean it and then create a data model, which you then can do your query or make your decision based on. Yeah. Um, and that is the bucket story. Whereas if you have a data ops platform, you have automatic pipelines to all of these data sources, and you've got machine learning and AI algorithms that will do that, uh, bringing the data in and creating those relationships across all the data, curating it for you, contextualizing it, and then you know creating an API or an SDK or some kind of a faucet that lets you access it. Yeah. That's what a data, data platform does. Well, that, that's the last, the, the latter part of what you've just said is, is super important. I think having the ability to collect from various disparate types of data sources, contextualizing, curating, uh, whatever you need to do to clean and aggregate and make the data relevant is likely, uh, I don't want to say useless, but you negate the value of that if you don't have the ability to share it with its context to other business applications, sources, people, and different roles within organization and the format and context of those people and those systems needed it. And That's absolutely right. That's what we, we call our API SDK layer is basically you know, all of the faucets that are out there that anyone can hook to. And that's where the principle of openness comes in because mm -hmm. we're not just, I mean, we do have some applications at Cognite that that we we can sell to people, but it doesn't. You don't have to. Like you can get a third party, or you can write your own, you know, citizen developer code or whatever it is that you want to do with that data, and it's open. Um, anyone can use it. Yeah, I, I always use the analogy of a, of a time machine, um, and the reason I say a time machine is, I think if if you don't have that faucet, having this immediate tap that you can just open up and have this information almost in real time available we always seem to do things reactive it's a uh, you go as you said you go spend so much time collecting massaging cleaning that the data to make the decision on is it's almost old again it's it's a reactive after the shift after the day after this process order has been run 
it's it's a very reactive way versus a, a more real-time and pre-active way of actually having data that you can influence way production is going, not not reactive, actually while it's still busy happening for that shift or for that day. Mm. So it saves not only time, your personal time, mm. that you actually do the job that you're supposed to do by having information available, also saves the time of, of, of your company reducing cycle counts, et cetera. So it's got massive value having an automated data stream available for you that is available on tap almost you, yeah we can coin it that on tap that's like, let's call it value on tap value yeah. on tap <laughs> i think one I other like element too that's quite interesting is that um a lot of times the the data silos that that where the data sources are where the data resides we talked about these proprietary you know vendor applications and where this, the, the data mm. sits in there oftentimes um those are license-based um, systems and so and they're very discipline specific. So you know the geologists all have licenses to Petrel and Schlumberger Petrel, which is a software that helps you to make maps and things. The engineers have um, licenses to some other software where all the engineering drilling data is housed. And you know the finance folks have licenses to the SAP data where you know all of the um, purchasing and logistics sit. And um, it's all very isolated and not very democratic. In other words, geologists don't have access to drilling data or financial data. Financial people don't have access to drilling data or geology data. And so um, that, that actually stymies innovation quite a lot because oftentimes if you bring all the data in and contextualize it, you also democratize it. It's not just that it's open to anyone, but multiple um, people who think in multiple different ways have access to the big picture and can maybe see things that um, people in isolation in their discipline bubble with their software bubble and their data bubble wouldn't be able yeah. to see. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the the automated piece of what you just said, plus the, the team of people to curate, plus the experts, I'm gonna call them experts loosely, um, I think experts is probably today in 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 our world. Experts is, I think experts are non-existent, <laughs> or at least that's when you lose your expertise and you call yourself an expert. Uh, but having having the dependence and the reliance on all of those resources, tools, applications, uh, the more of that you have, I, I think that's where the technical debt comes in. And you you mentioned earlier the the how all of that inhibits innovation, yeah. and and the technical debt is such a big aspect of that, isn't it? Mm, yeah, yeah. Uh, domain knowledge workers is an alternative to experts, but it's, it talks about the, you know, the different, yeah, the different knowledge domains that people have. Um, and again, that you know, I just think it's super important for people to 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 have be able to have all the information. Even some, it might be outside of your domain, but it might actually impact your domain. So it's it's really useful to have that democratization of data. Absolutely. And I think I think it's also to break habits. I mean, if you don't if you don't show people the I'm just going to use financial data as, a, as an example. If you don't show people financial data in context to time series process data coming from a from a fraud and the actual actions that an operator takes having potential not only financial implications, 
uh, we're probably going to talk a little bit about energy and and the whole the whole um, how do we drive effective energy usage. But if you're not going to show the actual effect of what he's doing on the plant floor based on financial or energy KPIs, we're not going to break habits. We're not going to make that guy think about what he's doing because again, we're giving him the silo in isolation just to operate the plant or whatever the case is that he's in context. There's no context. Mm. Yeah. So I think that's, that's critical. And as you said, it's not, it's not open, playing open cards here, right? Here's all my financial statements of the business, but having that context around just a little bit more, if you now change this set point or stop this device or enable this new pump, how does it actually affect not only financially, but also from an energy perspective, how does mm. that, how does that impact mm. that? Yeah, that's absolutely, it's really critical now. I mean, we have some customers in Canada and Canada has just recently instituted a carbon pricing um, system. And it, it's kind of in a tranche system so that if you exceed a certain threshold, then, you know, your pricing like say doubles. And then if you exceed that, then, you know, it, it's kind of an exponential curve. And so you have people out there that whose job it is to, um, you know, improve or, or optimize on production only. And they're only yes. looking at their production numbers, but it actually yeah. comes to a point where if you produce a certain above a certain threshold, you're actually losing money. So um, you need to be able to see your greenhouse gas emissions impact for every decision that you make. Um, and you need to be able to do it real time. It's not good enough to just go back over last year and look at your SAP receipts and say, how much fuel did we buy? And we'll turn that into greenhouse gas, you know, convert that with a conversion factor into emissions. Um, that's way too late. That's not an actionable um, you know, piece of information anymore. Yeah, you, you have to actually have it real time. Yeah. Yeah. I wonder, I wonder how the I wonder how the truckers feel about that all. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, we've had some we have we've had some really interesting um, results from there was one project that we did where we were helping um, a, a facility uh, optimize their their meg usage. Meg is a chemical um, methyl ethylene glycol, which we use to prevent um, uh, hydrate formation in pipelines. And um, it's, not a, it's not a nice chemical at all. We really want to try to use it as little as possible. The problem is if you don't have real visibility to exactly what's happening, um, you, you end up doing a sort of a scheduled utility of this chemical as opposed to really only doing it when you need it. Um, people err on the side of uh, caution and overuse overdose this chemical a lot because the the flip side if if you get it wrong and you freeze up your pipe you know you have to shut down your entire production and it's very costly. Um, when we instituted this and across six different assets in one of our customers, um, and the operators had the visibility of this, they started to like really. Um, query and understand they couldn't, they wouldn't, they were able to see not just their MEG um, situation, but also all of the facilities MEG situations. And so they were able to compare, understand best practice, you know, why does that 12-hour tower use less MEG than that other 12-hour tower? Yeah. Why does that facility, which has the same exact same equipment and pipe, piping design, use less than that one? 
And it was all about how we practice and, you know, what is best practice, what is the technical limit and, and really, you know, having this, this visibility and this um, transparency around the data, the operators themselves started to, you know, compete with each other and say, well, how low can we go? <laughs> how, how can yeah. we do this better? And, and when your operators are that in that frame of mind and that drive, and that's the way they operate, then you know you've done something great, and you've you've that's the winning recipe. When the people that are at the the coalface that probably have the most impact on on the overall picture, when they have that sense of awareness and visibility to what their actions cause and and can contribute, that that's where you want to land with that. I think very important to that point is that if you have in this case, it was six facilities. Um, if you have maybe you know, 20, 30, 40, also very important to understand that you should have a thing that can scale. Mm. That's the benchmarking that you apply and the, the model or the template that you apply to that KPI should be the same for each and every one so that you can with confidence actually make that benchmarking comparison. And I think that's a very important thing is that you should, you should have confidence in the data of making a decision. Mm. Nobody this day and age should sit in a meeting or in a discussion around why is the number X. I'm arguing about the validity or the or the, or it's the if correctness. Yeah. The, the point should be what is the action that I'm going to take around why the value, the number is a certain value, mm. not why is the value X, Y, Z. Mm. Um, yeah. And I think that's an important thing is that people need to start trusting their data. Um, and if you have a, a solid platform that gives you that, that, that solution, well, then then you should be a way actually utilizing that efficiently and getting to the, the the bits that matter. What is the actual improvement or action that you're going to take on it? Hmm. Carolina, you from your your background is oil and gas, so we ours is a little bit more food and beverage, but we see it when we're talking about energy and the energy challenge and the energy drive. We see it with something very simple like utilities, for example, in a, in a food and beverage manufacturing environment. The ability to understand, I don't know, water, um, electricity, uh, air, uh, whatever the whatever the energy. It's actually it's actually quite quite interesting because in food and beverage we also use chemicals to clean and sterilize the production line after it. Yeah, uh, we have a very good. We have a, a story where, yeah, they 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 were dumping the chemical into the wrong the wrong pipe on the wrong actually went to waste, um, and it's a chemical that you can actually reintroduce into the process and reuse it over and over again. Um, so yeah, it's, it's it sounds very similar, and I think that's the point is that it doesn't matter if it's oil and gas or food and beef, mm. it still stays a data challenge to actually achieve or to see what is a, the business goal that you want to achieve with that. Seemingly a little bit philosophical, but it's actually very pragmatic and practical. I mean, if we're talking about sustainable future um, and energy initiatives, it's almost unthinkable how we can understand to reach that end goal or destination without understanding where we are at the moment and what we need to do to change or to to pivot in a certain direction. And that's that's the secret of the data. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, many most of our customers don't have a a view of what their baseline is, right? I, I mean, in the oil and gas sector, these companies have made these incredibly ambitious um, claims around net zero by 2030 or 2040 or 2050 or whatever. Um, yeah. And not only do they not have any idea how they're going to get there, but they also don't even know where they are right now, like where the starting point is. 
Yeah. Like what is our actual, you know, greenhouse gas emissions right now or our wastewater or, you know, yeah. all the different things that, that we're trying to measure, chemical usage, um, power usage, et cetera. So, but just establishing that baseline is a data problem already. Yeah. Um, yes. at the, at the yeah. And, and what we see, normally what we see is if, if we create the baseline, normally what will happen with the baseline is it will be the variability in that usage will be quite high. Mm. By just having insight around what that baseline is and the variability around the usage immediately reduces the variability. It's mm. you're not doing anything fancy even with it. Yeah. It's just the fact that you make all of a sudden there visibility yeah. and visibility mm. on what that is, that alone can drive less variability in, in the actual usage of B water, wastewater production, or whatever the case is. Yeah. yeah. I forgot who it was that said you can only, you know, you can't change what you don't measure. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we, we we have a couple of analogies that we usually refer to as flying a flying an aeroplane without a uh, without various gauges or driving a car without a dashboard. I mean, it's it's, it's simple and it's so so obvious, I suppose. But when we when we think about large complex initiatives, it's almost something that's sort of forgotten because of all the noise around the tech and the approach and the strategy and the people and the resources. It's such a fundamental thing. Um, I, I wanted to, before I forget, I wanted to, so Lenny loves speaking about AI and machine learning as, as a subset, whatever you want to categorize that. Um, so, so when we talk about, uh, I don't know, Carolina, is it emerging technologies? Is it old? Is it? <laughs> I don't know what the correct terminology of all of these, all of these really smart and clever um, initiatives are that that potentially holds so much promise, but it's seemingly also, to your point earlier, not that easy for people to scale. What, what is your view around those technologies at the at the minute, and how do you feel about the introduction and the adoption and the scalability? You're talking about um, artificial intelligence, machine yeah. learning. You know, and yeah. they, they span multiple different things. I mean, even things yeah. like computer vision, for example, um, or you know, natural language processing, extracting information from old documents, or immersive um, technologies. I mean, there's, there's so many subsets. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, it is a very broad thing, and but I do think um, you know, there's some really positive. Uh, aspects to that uh, with regard to, I mean, something as simple as uh, computer vision and being able to fly drones over, um, I mean, we have a project with some power and utility companies where we automatically detect um, vegetation encroachment. Um, so we can do that with drones or with cameras that they have, um, basically looking at vegetation and using machine algorithm uh, to, to, to recognize when trees or, or other things are encroaching on power lines, um, which then reduces the, the, the risk. Um, uh, you know, that, that would be hundreds and hundreds of man hours of people driving mm -hmm. out in trucks and measuring stuff that can be done very, very quickly and efficiently um, using satellite yeah. images or, or drones. I mean, think about all the, 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 the gasoline that you used driving. Yes, exactly. Man hours and, and, you know, driving hundreds of truck hours and, and uh, fuel for that. So, um, you know, there's a lot of things that that technology is doing um, that, that I think is good. 
uh, and, and positive on the sustainability side of things. And, and also removing danger, people from dangerous situations. You know, we've got, um, we, we work with Boston Dynamics and we have a spot, you know, the robot dog. Um, we do a lot of programming of spot for some of our customers. Um, and we have, for example, uh, we've got algorithms that we've written where we take data from uh, an asset, a facility, and if there's an alarm uh, of a potential gas leak, for example, we can send Spot in and he's got a sniffer on him where he can you know, sniff out all, all kinds of different chemicals. Um, so that you don't have to send a person in there. Um, you can send a robot dog into you know, these nooks and crannies within a facility to um, determine if there's a danger or, or a leak or some other issue. That, that's so, incredible. So we <laughs> we have in the in the mining industry. So so the mining industry is really the the stronghold here in South Africa, and it has been for for many many years. But uh, inevitably, any one of these mining sites that you that you go to, there's I mean, there's a lot of tested and tribal knowledge that exists within the workforce in those those industries, right? And uh, um, inevitably, at any one of these plants, there's always a, a usually a um, you know a fairly senior person that's been there for probably his entire his or her entire career yeah that's where they started their career and you you start speaking about these kind of technologies and they'll they'll quickly explain to you that they can simply walk through the plant and hear if a turbine or something is not running efficiently as it should and that's fantastic so the first thing you do is congratulate them for their skill and their experience and their knowledge but then explain all right, and if, if you're no longer at the site or the plant, who's, who's going to have the intuition or the or the skills and the knowledge to know that something isn't running as it should just by keeping an ear open? I mean, it, it, you still find a lot of that kind of mentality as well. I think that, that was the, the, the coolest thing when I saw what spot actually can be. It's phenomenal. It's, it's audio recognition on, on pieces of equipment. Yeah. It's such a simple, <laughs> it's actually a very simple idea. Yeah. It's yeah. just to compare what is a normal audio wave for a piece of equipment versus when things go wrong. Yeah. Well, and combining it with other data as well. So that's, you know, I mean, Spot can read, um, you know, analog dials and recognize spills and all kinds of other things. But, um, you know, and it's great. You get, you get image or you get, you know, an alarm or some kind of thing like that, but you know, it comes into Cognite Data Fusion and then gets combined with all of the other, the PNID, which is like the big uh, blueprint of the facility um, as part of it. And then, you know, you automatically have access to the age of the equipment and, you know, what is its shelf life and, you know, is it ready to fail or, you know, there's all kinds of other data that's associated with that, that you can do an analysis on and say, well, you know, is this likely to leak now, or it's brand new, or maybe we did some maintenance on it and somebody forgot to shut something off or, you know yeah. what I mean? You, you have everything, all that data at your fingertips. Yeah, it's very real as examples. Um, it's, it's absolutely very real. Um, so we spoke a little bit about um, the data challenge. We've spoken about the approach, the um, environment that you create through industrial data arts. We've spoken a bit about emerging technologies um, and all of its subsets of artificial intelligence, of which there are many. I think once once we understand the approaches, the what needs to be done. Um, let's just call it as what's next for, for towards digital transformation. I think a lot of a lot of individuals and and corporates they view the journey as 
something that comes with a couple of hundred million price tag. Um, it's going to be done over 20 years. Um, they're not entirely sure necessarily where to start. They should start with a data foundation, but they're not necessarily sure where to start, um, how to go about it. And it's seen as one very long journey with very few milestones. We, we always talk about an agile approach, small intermittent wins, gains, prove some ROI, move on to the next one. Um, can you recommend any kind of investments, infrastructure, or, or, or just any recommendations to put in place to consider um, to help this, this transition towards um, not digital transformation specifically, but the end goal of, of um, energy and, and just a sustainable future? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I just, I think that um, we need to, we need to move away from the thought that there's going to be, um, a, you know, a piece of software or an application that's yeah. going to solve the problem. That it's actually, yeah. that it, you know, setting up a, a data foundation is actually good for all purposes, especially if you do it with an open system. Um, that you're not going to regret that investment because even, um, you know, even if the the software that you picked this year to to help you make a given decision goes away or becomes not useful anymore, that data foundation is still there and you can just plug in another software if something better comes along or write your own. Or, you know, you know, a lot of people are um, investing in um, educating or upskilling their existing domain knowledge workers um, to be able to do data science and analytics. Um, and so whatever data platform you invest in is gonna be a good investment for all seasons. It's, you know, it's gonna be an investment that lasts. Yeah. Um, and uh, so, often, often uh, you mentioned training and, and skilling up. Often we would talk about the, when Skynet became self-aware, artificial intelligence and all of these sort of emerging tech. We, I mean, the immediate thought of many very labor intensive industries is the loss of, of jobs and, and workforce, where I think the, um, the view should rather be one of what skills and what learning do we need to deploy, equip that workforce with right now that will be needed once we do that, because that transition is inevitable. Uh, but instead of recognizing the loss, just perhaps recognizing the opportunity and, and sort of preparing for that now. Yeah, I, I was just um, reading this really funny article. I, I mean, that is, let me just acknowledge what you said, you know, that resistance to change is very real and people, and there's a lot of, um, you know, fear around what change will bring and how, you know, jobs will be impacted. And I think there's a, a lot of kind of scare stories about how robots and drones are going to take over the world and, you know, everybody's going to lose their job and things like that. And my my feeling about that is that yes, that there probably will be a loss of quite a lot of existing jobs. Um, but that's happened any time throughout history. If you you know go back through the Industrial Revolution, or I was yeah. reading this really funny article called "The Big Crapple," which was about New York City and how it was very dominated by uh, horses, and they had so many horses. They had something like you know, uh, I don't know. 10,000 horses in New York City, and it, they were just kind of being buried under manure. And there was a whole industry around horses, right? There were stables, there were stable hands, there were people who did nothing but pick up horse poop. 
Um, there was uh, people who transported all the manure out to the farms that were around. I mean, there was an entire economy that was based on horses around the turn of the 19th, uh, 20th century. And then, you know, by 20, by 1915, it was over. It was done. There was, everybody was, it was horseless carriages. It was cars. And so there was a whole bunch of new jobs that had to crop up as a result of that. There was, you know, people who, the mechanics and there was chauffeurs and there was a whole nother sort of industry that rose up, not to mention, you know, Ford's factory and, and the invention of the, um, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, automated, what do you call it, um, assembly line. So, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, I, and I think that this, this is not any different. This is another sort of revolution in the way that we think and the, and the way that data is managed and the decisions are made and the, the way that industry is gonna work, but there's going to be a lot of new um, businesses, new jobs, new, um, actually probably whole new sectors that are gonna crop up as a result yeah. of it. It's almost when we, we would look back in hindsight now, it's almost, it wasn't even a blimp. Um, it, was, it was almost a natural progression, almost seamless. It just happened. At that time, it was probably sort of like to where we are now, scary, intimidating, uh, a lot of uncertainty. But but again, yeah, looking back in hindsight, it's, or at least historically, it's, it's, it wasn't even a blimp. It just happened. It's, it's, it's quite interesting because... I, I take your your well versus faucet example, and I and I and this story about the horse and the car, because <laughs> when Henry Ford introduced the, the car, I mean people people said no, that's not what we need. We need faster horses. Yeah. So it's almost, it's yeah, almost like right. if you ask people what they want, they say, well, give me a bigger bucket so I can get more milk out of the well. That's what I need. Um, but yeah, that's right. changing that's the right. minds. You know, I don't need a bigger bucket. I yeah. need a faucet. I need something that I can open up in the kitchen, open up in the bathroom, open up in the shower, and give different answers. But it's still coming from from water. Yeah. So yeah, that's quite a quite an interesting analogy. That, <laughs> that, <yeah. laughs> we've discussed wells, horses, um, horse spot. Um, yeah. We've, we've <laughs> But I mean, that's, and Carolina, I mean, that's why it's so important to have these conversations and, and have it openly. You know, it's not it's not the kind of innovation talk that that happens within strategic teams anymore. The, you know, we, we need to all have these conversations as a, as a community. Um, and it's important. And as a business, I mean, uh, you, you always get the guy that's going to say, I don't I don't need a KPI to to tell me how good am I doing my job or why? Why are you spying? Well, you know, that just that that notion that information should not be held accountable as a stick hmm. um, it should rather be something that's going to save you time hmm. and energy and money hmm. in in your daily job hmm. um, instead of spending hours on sites manually collecting data um, looking at stuff in isolation to even try and figure out what went wrong hmm. um, so yeah definitely that's also a cultural aspect right Karina? i think any any change within a business whether it's around information strategy and data aggregation and and information there's, there's there's a big cultural drive within the business and typically from top management down that's that's super critical you know we've we've had a couple of examples in certain certain cases where once the information is exposed and shared 
there's a reluctancy to hide it again because it, it exposes certain inefficiencies. And, and I mean, it's mindless to, to think that it happens, but it absolutely does. But that's where the cultural aspects of that drive within the business and the leadership is so important. Yeah, I, I mean, change management is its own, it's a whole other podcast, right? I mean, it's it's very yeah. difficult. It's very Human difficult. Human management. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, my, in my experience, uh, you know, people that are on the front lines that are making, that are really struggling to make the right decision and, and, and you know, get their hands on the information that they need in order to really make a good decision, um, are, are very, very positive and, and eager to do things in a different way. And executives are because they know that it's going to gain them efficiency and, and reduce costs and, you know, accelerate production and reduce footprint, um, where you really run into this sort of middle, you know, layer, um, which we used to call the gumbo layer at BP, which is, you know, sort of director level people who have like, you know, like my, my, my age, I guess, or my level of experience that are directors or VPs that have invested 30 years of their career doing something in a certain way. And they actually have sort of restricted elite access to information, which then gives them power um, within the company. And when you democratize the data and you make it all transparent and you do things in a really different way, that's very threatening. Um, and, and that's something that I think a lot of companies run into is how do you engage those um, middle, that middle layer um, and, and you know, make them feel like this is something for them that's actually beneficial for them. It almost makes, almost makes a couple of those folks in those roles sometimes irrelevant. You know, it's it's a it's an entire role that exists that's potentially replaced with a very smart report. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I guess I, I mean they might see that, but actually, you still need those folks to to lead and to um, you know to have vision and to help you know frame and make decisions. Um, mm. It's important, you know, but maybe you don't need as many of them. You're right about that. And maybe, <laughs> you know, uh, th- their role is different. It's more of a thought leader as opposed to, hey, you know, I have been a petrophysicist for 30 years and I have all of the global we- uh, petrophysics data in this company. And if you want to know anything about petrophysics, you have to come to me. That's no longer going to be a thing. Yeah. I think, and I think that's also one of the big misconceptions about AI and machine learning is the notion that it's gonna it's gonna do it, it's gonna make the change, and it's gonna fix everything. It's only gonna give you the recommendation. Hmm. A human, I'm still gonna make the actual decision on what to do next. Um, and I think, and I think that's a bit of a misconception when, especially when we talk about you know the the new technologies is mm-hmm. from that aspect it's just a recommendation on, on what needs to be done mm-hmm. and you as a human are going to make that final choice yeah yeah absolutely and actually we talked about curation and how important that is and even the contextualization the the mapping of the relationships across multiple different data types from different data sources i mean uh, you know, a machine can only do so much, but you actually need a knowledge worker, an expert, a dom- somebody who really understands the domain to continuously um, help that 
machine algorithm, you know, do that curation and that relationship mapping, it's, it's not going to be able to do it by itself. It'll make suggestions. It'll say, hey, I think that this well is located at this XYZ location based on the fact that I've, I've seen it in these five other sources. Is that correct? Like somebody still yeah. needs to, you know, make that decision. Yeah. And innovate. I think human beings are we still the true innovators? And 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 I can't see that changing. Carolina, thank you so much. Any, um, I've just realised um, we've been we've been speaking for a while. Thank you so much for your time, your insights. That was really insightful. I enjoyed it. A little bit philosophical. We always like that. Um, <laughs> love the analogies. Um, any any closing thoughts? And I'm, I'm sure we can share your contact information at Cognite with our listeners. Absolutely. Sure. Uh, no, I just think that, um, you know, what I would want people to uh, walk away from this conversation is to think about their mindset and are they still kind of stuck in a little bit of a data management mindset as opposed to a data operations mindset. Um, and uh, you really don't need to make a trip to the well with a bucket every single time you have uh, a use of data. <laughs> so that's it. Definitely. Data management versus data ops. Um, yeah. democratizing the data yeah. yeah and i think i think for my last final remark Yahoo, i think we've said it so many times on so many different podcasts mm -hmm. but just make sure again use open standards open protocols swapping out from x to z shouldn't matter as carolina also mentioned make sure when whatever you de deploy make sure it's just based on open technologies sorry yeah. that's one of my you know it's one of my pet pieces that's oh, one of <laughs> That's great. So that was Carolina Torres, the Executive Director at Energy Industry Transformation at Cognite. Uh, if you want to get in touch with Carolina, continue the conversation. Very insightful for us. Please do. And as always, send us any suggestions, comments, future topics to talk through. That's why we're here, is to have great conversations, insightful conversations, and yeah, let us know if there's anything that we, we're missing that's more relevant than some of the topics we're talking about right now. From my side, uh, second best, last, last, I promise. But the fact that data, the new notion of data being a commodity is just being amplified in every podcast that me and Yaku pretty much does. Um, so yeah, please, if there's any any topics on data challenges that you guys want us to address, please, please let us know. But it definitely seems to be the, the topic of discussion definitely so far this series. Fantastic. If you're still with us, well done. It means it, it means that you've, you you either have a lot of endurance or if you really enjoyed the episode, which we did. Um, it was it was lovely chatting with with Carolina and just getting a lot of validation on some of these things we we're all passionate about. So that was episode 28. We will see you in a couple of weeks' time for episode 29. Uh, we've got a couple of nice topics lined up. But yeah, please get in contact at podcast at element8.co.za if you want to suggest any other further topics and comments. Lenny, thank you very much. Cool. Thanks, Cheers, everybody. Cool. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye.